Last week we kicked off by looking at truth. Truth was what we define as what matches the facts. Just a very brief recap, a couple of sentences. Truth last week, do you remember that? Was what matches the facts and what corresponds to reality. And there's a whole discussions that have happened this week in offices and around the place with all sorts of Hindus and Muslims and atheists around this week. Now a contradiction was something that was opposite Okay, or opposites cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. So if a statement is true, its opposite or its contradiction is clearly false. And that was the very beginning to lay the platform and they laid the statements, those two statements, lay the foundation for this week's challenge. We're going to look at, in a brief moment, into what are the evidences for the existence of God. Now remember, the people that you talk to at work, Vinand, don't have much background in God. And they're going to want to start from the very beginning. But before we do that, I want to look at this. Today the question is, does God exist? Everybody in your office, your neighbour, is asking that question. Because if he does, there's some jolly big implications flow from that. If he doesn't, there's also some big implications. So, Christianity, and I realise some of you today are not Christians. That's okay. You're in a safe place. Christianity, though, I want to be clear, rests upon God's existence. And therefore, if God does not exist, Christianity is false. Fair? Okay. Now, if you would take a poll of your friends at university, Miss Mandy, and ask them, do you believe in God? There's three possible answers it can give you. Number one is, yes, I do believe God exists. Number two is it'd say, no. And what's the third one? I'm not sure. There's only three possibilities that are going to... Um, give you. Now, the New Zealand census, which is a reasonable gauge of the psyche of New Zealand and beliefs, says this. About 80% of Kiwis believe in the existence of some sort of a God. That's what it is. That's a fact. So you can take that and don't be ashamed of that. You can look it up and you can prove the point in some form of God. 20% don't know or aren't sure. Now, some deny God's existence because they don't think there's any evidence for God. So, lacking that, they conclude, which is reasonable, it will be foolish to believe. On the other hand, if you ask those who affirm God's existence to explain what kind of God exists, you discover very quickly that not everybody believes or agrees on what he's like or what we Christians call his nature, his nature. What are his attributes? What does this God actually look like? So there are a couple of big questions that we're going to look at. Number one is what is the evidence that God exists? That's the first question we're going to look at. So be sure to get that one there, Ian. And which God does that evidence point to? You're going to have this discussion with your children. 
You're going to have this discussion with people at work. So the purpose of these, of these messages is to equip you to give credible answers. So our task in this coming session will be to answer those. What is the evidence that God exists? And do the facts support belief in God? And then which God does the evidence point to? Is it a match for the God of the Bible or for a different God? That's a very fair question that you need to be prepared to answer. Now, the answers to these two questions are foundational because, listen to this, if there is no God, then there is no Son of God. There is no Word of God. So we can't even get to them until we establish the first. And Jesus, therefore, did not die for our sins and all the tenets of the Christian faith would collapse. Right? So, now the same is true as to God's nature. If the evidence supports a God other than the God of the Bible, then believers have misplaced their trust. And you're going to hear that. from Because atheists aren't like atheists of the day when I grew up. They've got an attitude and a hardened edge to them. So this week and next, we're going to examine the evidence that demonstrates that God does exist and he has left his fingerprints as proof. So, now, just a couple of other thoughts to, uh, interesting thoughts to start some questions with your colleagues. There are two fundamental questions of origins. And that, the first one is, what caused the universe and what caused life? They are two good conversation starters you may want to use at some stage. Because it's going to bring out the beliefs and what you're, you know, some bizarre beliefs actually. Good conversation starters, those two questions. Hey, tell me, what do you think started the universe? How, do, how, did, this, how did life get here? How did that happen? We're going to briefly touch on some of those things a little later on. So, so let me start now in terms of the first section of this. That was briefly introductory comments. The second challenge that Christians face today is a bald statement. And here it is. God does not exist. You're going to hear that said. So I want you to get used to hearing that. And today we're going to look at, do the facts support belief in God? And the challenge to us is, can we demonstrate convincingly, beyond reasonable doubt, that the God of the Bible is true? That he's there. <coughs> So we're going to approach this question the same way a detective would. Does God exist? When a detective solves a murder or a mystery, they need to determine if someone is in a certain location, they look for clues. And some of the clues they use are fingerprints. And we can look for whether God has left a trail of fingerprints in the universe to show us if he's there. So the question is, do the facts support a belief in God? And can we demonstratingly, uh, demonstrate convincingly that he exists? Now, every person, before we get to the facts, I want that we don't want to skim over this because it's important you are familiar with the language because you're going to hear it. So we're going to do this in church. Every single person that you know has a, something called a worldview. And a worldview is simply the way that one understands life, the way one looks at life. Now, it will affect how we answer the big questions in life. For example, where did we come from? That's a very good question. 
Are we the byproduct of an evolutionary process? Or were we created specifically by God on purpose? Why are we here? Your worldview will inform that. Does life have any meaning whatsoever? Or purpose? Or were we born only to die? And what happens to us after we die? That will depend upon your worldview. Is heaven real and is hell real? That will also depend upon your worldview. Now your answers to these matters like this will determine your worldview and how you think about God, His nature and life in general. There are four main contrary, remember the word, contrary worldviews, four of them that you need to be aware of. And we're just going to generally look at them before we delve into the evidence. Because the way you look at these will affect the way you look at the evidence. That's why we're looking at this first. The four most common are, let me give you them quickly and then we'll define them a little bit. Atheism is a worldview. Deism is a worldview. Pantheism is a worldview. And theism. Now please bear with me. They're the four toughest words when I come across today but we need to have a quick look and our goal is to ascertain which view of God makes the most sense and has the most supportive evidence that's our goal which of these if any has evidence and which is the most shows the most supportive evidence yeah so let's take a look at the first one atheism atheism claims there is no God And by the way, friends, that is intellectually arrogant to say that. Because let me quickly draw, in fact, do this on your papers if you want to take a two-second way to disarm atheists. Draw yourself a little circle somewhere. And on that circle, I want you to give that person, I'd say to them, hey, listen, if if this little circle represents all there is to possibly know in the universe, that's all the knowledge that's possible. How much of that would you say that you know? Stefan, let's be, let's be generous and let's give you 20% of all there is to know. Okay. But let's just put it, put it down there. So draw a little pie there and put 20%. That's how much you know. And put a, a, a line that says, that's how much you know. And then you say to them, how much is left? How much is left? 80%. So you say, how could you rationally say, if you only know 20%, wouldn't it be a tad irrational to say that in the 80% of all knowledge that you don't know yet that God doesn't? Can you, over, can you more than convincingly be aware that 80% that God doesn't exist in the 80% of the knowledge that you don't know? So they cannot absolutely say, there is no God that is irrational to say that. Because to say that, it is categoric and says there is no possibility of a God exists. If you only own 20 Surely that does make sense. Traditionally, you, um, atheists have had a, a, a position that said the universe had no beginning. That's what they said. And still I've got a major problem with that. And no end. It's always existed. It's been in perpetuity. They've also said that humanity, in other words, people, are the result of random blind chance. It's blind chance. There is no overseeing architect. It's just random. And those of you who do mathematics know there is no pattern in random numbers. And therefore, there is no reason for our existence. How can it be? You can't get reason out of randomness. 
And therefore, friend, they say, take a chill pill and a reality check. There is no afterlife. And it's a hopeless philosophy. It's a hopeless worldview. There is no hope in that. All there is is the here and now. So live like hell. And who gives a rip about the rest? By the way, that drives a lot of wars. Okay. The second one is deism. And deism, these people believe there is a God. I want you to know this. And he created the universe and he created people. But after he did, he backed off. It's kind of like he wound up the clock, put it down there and he stepped back. But they don't believe there's such a thing as miracles. And they think that God withdrew and he left us and he's no longer directly involved. So if somebody talks about, hey, I'm a deist, you'll know that they kind of believe there is a kind of creator, but he kind of made it, made us, and then backed off and left us alone. And he never intervenes. What's the implication of that? There are no miracles. It's impossible. So they do. who is a famous deist? Thomas Jefferson. He took his Bible and he took the scissors and he cut out every single miracle in the Bible. He was a deist. He believed in God, he believed in the Creator, but he believed that he backed off and he doesn't, he's not directly involved anymore. A deistic God is inaccessible and he is remote and he's never directly involved. He does not and will not intervene in your life. That is how a deist sees life. Nearly there before we get into the evidence. The third one, which has become more and more prevalent in the last perhaps 10, 15 years, is this area which is pantheism. Now, pantheism means all theos. Pan, all, theos, God. In other words, all is God. It's a worldview that maintains that everything we see, every animal, every tree, every insect, every stream, every person, is imbued with a divine force. So nature itself and every living creature is part of God. And the New Age expression, which you may well have heard, illustrates pantheism. It says this, there is a God and you are him. That is pantheism. Paul talks about pantheism when he says, you worshipped the creation rather than the creator. This thinking on worldview has been around a long time. The fourth and last we're going to look at today is theism, which is what we believe, if you're a Christian. And that is, if I can summarise it, that there is only one eternal God who created the entire universe, everything that exists. And by the way, it also clearly says in Genesis 1.1 that the universe is not eternal, not Eternal. You need to make sure you've got that. It came into being in Genesis 1.1 because it says there, in the beginning, we're going to come back to that verse, when God spoke the whole thing into existence. Now, theism contradicts atheism in denying that the universe is eternal. They say, no, it's not. It began. And they reject the idea that life, including human mind, Evolved from a primordial soup via the blind chances of nature. 
theists assert very clearly that we are a unique creation of God who began the universe with a purpose. He's a personal God. So I want to quickly summarise these four views. Therefore, on the screen. Atheism believes in a universal, uh, the universe is eternal and there is no God. Don't need a God because it was always there. That's what they say. And then deism says God created the universe, is now absent and inactive. That's a one sentence summary. Absent and inactive. The third, pantheism says all is God. Remember pantheos, all is God. And then finally, theism is different because it believes that God created everything and is active and can do miracles. We're going to get to that a little later on. Final chart. I want to show you the contradictory. So remember we're getting at this word contradictory because people say all religions lead to God. No, they don't because they've got major contradictory claims. They are not in any way, shape or form. Here's a classic example. Number one, we say the universe... Is it, oh, sorry, theism says the universe is eternal. False. Atheism says that's true. On the subject of life evolved, we say false. Atheism says true, contradictory. God is actively involved. We say true. And they say, the deists say false. And then finally, God is man. Theism says to that statement, false. But pantheism says true. So the substantial contradictions, I want you to grasp that. Substantial contradictions fundamentally. Now somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And the unbreakable law of contradiction says that contradictory truth claims, which is what they are, cannot be true at the same time and in the same way. So we're going to compare those worldviews by asking which of the worldviews as we go through this evidence now best explains the real world what which best matches the evidence we're going to examine in this session and the ones ahead so if we can just pop up the next slide thanks guys we're going to look at three great arguments for a theistic God and let me just give you them quickly it's the beginning it is design and it is the moral argument. Three big ones. Design. So the first thing is this. The first argument for God's existence can be stated like this. Everything that has a beginning had a beginner or a cause. It's called a universal law of causality. The universe had a beginning. It's not eternal. Therefore, the universe had a cause or a beginner. That's a simple logic. Everything that had a beginning had a beginner. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, if the first two points are true, the third is automatically true. This principle is so foundational that the, one of the history's most famous skeptics, which you will learn about at university, girls, you will learn about this guy called David Hume. He even said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition that anything might arise without a cause. Never. 
So let's unpack this. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Now, one of the most basic laws of science is known as the law of causality. And basically it says that anything that had a beginning was caused by something outside of itself. For example, buildings are caused by architects. That didn't just happen. Somebody planned it, carefully made sure that the beams fit together. There was great thought gone to that. It was, they were built by contractors, architects, carpenters, electricians. Now, computers. Computers are caused by hardware designers and programmers and manufacturers. Now, why can't something come from nothing? Because nothing is just that. Nothing. Nothing. But yet the opposite view says... Something came from nothing. That's insane. The law of causality supports our first point. Everything that had a beginning had a beginner. Our second point is that the universe had a beginning. It is not eternal. Now, two pieces of evidence that parents, you cannot ignore and you need to grapple with. Help us show that the universe had a beginning. The first one sounds a bit long. The second one's much shorter. The first one is something we refer to in physics. We learned that grant in sixth form physics called the second law of thermodynamics. You need to write that down. It's a very useful argument. And it says basically this, that the universe is running out of usable energy. Let me show you what I mean by that in a practical sense. It's like this torch. A torch was designed and created and assembled with new batteries, and then the moment you t- is that thing starts rolling, it starts to run downhill. It runs out. The torch and the battery and the bulb had a beginning, and from the time you first use it until the energy is stored, it depletes. You know what? Even if you didn't turn the jolly thing on, it would still run downhill. How many of you have ever found a torch that's seized up because the batteries just start to run downhill and corrode it? Yeah? <laughs> Look, you buy a brand spanking new car. It's orderly, beautiful. <sighs> Smells nice. You park it in the garage. You don't do a thing to it. We come back in 15, 20, 30 years, a few cobwebs here. A bit of imperfections in the paint. A thousand years later, given enough time, there's a pile of rust. Things run from a state of order to chaos. And we'll cover that later on which, of course, evolution goes exactly the opposite way. Once it was chaos, and all of a sudden become high-ordered. That's ridiculous. Okay. So because usable energy runs down, it means it had a beginning. And the big beginning that we have in our universe is called the Big Bang. The Big Bang is the universe expanding. as it would do as a result of a gigantic explosion that happened at the beginning of the universe. And that is, the universe is expanding from a point of beginning. So imagine if you had a little source of the... and it just went boom, and it just went outwards and outwards and outwards in all directions. Albert Einstein developed a theory, he said that the universe is time, space, and matter, and energy, and it all had a beginning. And evidence began to accumulate. Edwin Hubble from the Hubble Telescope was using one of the largest telescopes to 
took a series of photos of nearby galaxies over a period of time, and they showed very clearly, like a video, that everything was just exploding, boom, all uh, moving away from the Earth at very high speed. But it's kind of like if you rewind the video, it go to a single point. Now, if that was true, scientists said, there should be some heat signature left over. Like, have you ever been after the explosion? Ever looked along a road after the sun had just about gone, just before it goes down, and you could still see heat waves coming off the tarmac? Okay? Even after the sun was going down. There should be some heat signature left. Well, actually, in 1965, Dr. Arno Penzias and Dr. Robert Wilson identified this. And in 78, both of them received Nobel Physics Prizes for their discovery. Now, neither of them were believers. Yet Penzias says this. Take a look at this. These are Nobel Peace Prize winners in physics, so they know their stuff. And this is what they say. The universe was created out of nothing in an instant and continues to expand. What we found is a creation out of nothing and the appearance of nothing out of nothing of a universe. That statement compares remarkably to the biblical creation narrative, which says here, and by the way, Einstein's theory of relativity says that, this, we've already talked about that. Next slide. That there was a beginning to space, time and matter. Now notice what the Bible says. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Very, very similar. Now the scientific evidence leads us, this is what he said, Robert Jastrow, who has huge qualifications, he says this, the astronomical evidence leads us to a biblical view of origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and the biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. Amazing. Another Nobel Peace uh, Physics winner. Let's move on. Here's, a, here's a, another quote here. Astronomers now find they've painted themselves into a corner because they've proved by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation that you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on earth, and they have found that this all happens as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. Notice this next part. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Mr. Robert Jastrow. Agnostic. Let's move on. The accumulated data shows that the, the universe expanded out of nothing. Here, Arno Penzias says this, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go by but the first five books of Moses and the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. These are way above our normal grade, pay grade physicists. Robert Wilson, certainly there was something that set it all off. Look at this. I can't think of a better theory of origin of the universe to match Genesis. Genesis beats it. It's in the right order too. 
So don't, don't shy away from that. George Smoot. There is no doubt that a parallel exists between the big bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. Ex nihilo. But how could this be? How could everything we see come from nothing? It couldn't. Again, nothing cannot cause something. So someone or something caused or began the universe. The fact is that the universe had a beginning and it isn't new information. Long ago, the Bible said the beginner was God himself. In the beginning, Psalm 102. In the beginning, which is time. Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, matter, and the heavens, space. And the heavens are the work of your hands. You're worthy, O Lord, it says in Revelation 4, to receive glory and honour for and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The Bible says time had a beginning. The Bible says as we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and God destined for our glory before time began. This grace in 2 Timothy was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. Before it even happened. Amazing. And we speak of God's secret wisdom, it says in 1 Corinthians. A wisdom that has been hidden. I've said that one before, haven't I? Here we go. The hope of eternal life, which God promised before the beginning of time. See what it is. Time only started when the universe began and God was before that. To the only God and Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. See, God is outside of time. So, if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. So there are two options. Either, A, no one created something out of nothing, or someone or something created something out of nothing. There's only two. Real easy, this. Now, here's a good question to ask an atheist. If there is no God, why is there something at all? It's a good question. So the logical conclusion here, we have shown a little evidence that supports our first two statements, that everything that had a beginning has a beginner or a causer. That's the law of causality. It demands it because nothing just pops into being by itself. The second law of thermodynamics we looked at, Hubble's law, the universe is expanding. And the cumulative evidence for the Big Bang demonstrates clearly that the universe had a beginning. Now the truth of the first two statements establishes the truth claim of the third, which is a necessary conclusion. Therefore, the universe had a beginner. Or a causer. Now, based on the worldviews, it therefore is true that a theistic creator, God, one eternal God, who's before time, eternally use that because he was before time, created the entire universe and everything exists. Because the universe has not always been there. Rather, it came into being at the beginning when God spoke into existence. Now, the second part of this argument 
is probably one of my favourites. And this is the argument from design. Those of you who are architects or engineers will appreciate this. We've just seen one of the small evidences for the existence of God, the universe at the beginning. That's called the cosmological argument for those of you. That's not particularly important, but it's a handle for you. And the Bible identifies that cosmological creator as God. As to his existence, in the next two sessions, we're going to look at two more proofs. God's fingerprints can be found in design of the universe. This is a teleological argument. And the third one is God's fingerprints can be found in the moral laws. So here's how the argument, we're going to pursue it. Here's how we're going to present the argument. Number one, every complex design, think about your stuff that you design, Martin, has a designer. And two, everywhere we look, the universe, in the universe, we find the evidence of complex design. If the first two statements are true, then the third one will be true too. Therefore, the universe had a designer. So before we do that, we need to define a few tests. And I know it sounds, this is really important we get this part next. We need to have three tests for design. And here they are. Number one, is it simple or complex? Number two, is it orderly or does it just convey some information? The key word there is information. These tests will help us figure out whether and determine whether something is truly designed as opposed to a result of natural forces. And the third thing is, does it seem to have a purpose? Does it seem to have a purpose? So test number one. Is it simple or is it complex? Let's take a couple of basic looks at things here. The first example here is this wonderful mountain. Okay? A very simple form that's explained by the forces of nature, which will be wind, uh, rain, ice and snow. Okay, they've formed its outline. Fair enough? Fair point there? Nothing too rocket scientist about that. Let's take a look at the next example. Why are you smart? Can you tell exactly that there's some intelligence behind that? Why? Come on, give me some feedback. I've been doing too much talking. Give me some feedback. Why? Why is that? Hello. It's what? Getting the nose right. Getting the nose right. There we go. Give me some other reasons why you know that that wasn't just random nature. Because, if, because they're sculptures of living, well, not living, but people who actually existed. Okay. Okay, anything else? It's recognisable. Uh, I like that. It's recognisable. We immediately, in fact, some of you could, well, we won't go into that, but you could probably tell me who these people were. Someone designed and planned that. I mean, boy, I'd hate to do that in that scale. That's amazing. Exactly. Okay. Take a think, have a think about this next proposition. If you found this watch in the bush, <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> a Rolex, how nice. <laughs> Would you think it was made by natural laws? Why not? Why not? Because it just happens to match something that we, we use. Happens to match something that we use, yeah? Anything else? Pardon? Somebody's designed it. Yeah, we're getting to that, but well, why, why is it not natural? Well, how do you know that? 
Alex? Uh, yeah, but how do you know that? I like that. It's complex. It's relatively complex. Well done to the youth department. Okay. <laughs> Test number two. Is it just orderly or does it convey information? For example, DX, 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 Ad infinitum ad nauseum. So that's orderly. Or does it convey information? It's organised into orderly pattern, DX, 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 DX. But there's no information. It makes no sense. There's no message in that. So you need to ask the question, is it just orderly or does it convey information? Let's look at the next two images. Uh, looking at those next two images, the first one is a result of wind and water and the other one is a message that conveyed information. Okay, look at this next one. Okay, the first one was just wind and water. Right? That one there, how, I mean, if you walked across the beach and somebody tried to tell you, no, he's been on this place before, you'd say, yeah, dream on, mate. <laughs> it conveys information. Information is the mark of design. And design is the mark of an intelligent being. How many letters are in that? I love you. Quickly. How many? Whoa, okay. <laughs> Spoken like a true computer technician. <laughs> they, they, they do. Okay, let's take, for, uh, let's take the normal one, eight, okay? I love you. Information is the mark of design and design is the mark of an intelligent being. In the case of the universe, we're going to call it the intelligent, the intelligent being, the designer. How about this? Compare the canyon. Beautiful place where I've been. Eroded into certain patterns by the wind. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's move to the next one. This is a rock wall with a hieroglyphic that depicts a, a bison. It is made by design. It was designed by the designer to convey information. That word is very important. Now, I'm nearly to the end of these. Test number three. Has it got a purpose? We're just testing for design at the moment. Sometimes we aren't sure, for example, on the left, about the designer's intended meaning or purpose, for example, the hieroglyphics. But we did know that they serve a purpose and were conveying some form of information. Once the code's been broken, then we could understand the meaning and the purpose, therefore the purpose. Now the message in the sand that we just saw previously and on here, it's pretty clear. Somebody wants somebody else to know that they love them. That's clear. And by the way, that whole science is an area called semiotics, which is meaning from symbols. Semiotics. Now, let's go back to our first test. Every complex design has a designer. Wow, look at that one. I prefer the BMW i8 rather than the Audi, but that's okay. This, with this understanding of design, we can begin to establish now, slowly, our first point. Every complex design has a designer. And we don't need to search too hard for, for examples. Look at this next one. Homes, buildings, planes. 
I mean, they don't just happen by a random chance. Computers, cameras, paintings, sculptures and clothes. Here's another good Swiss watch, a Tissot T-Touch. That didn't just happen. And trust me, that is infantile and stupid compared to a basic cell. Stupid. That's nothing in terms of complexity compared to one amoeba. And that's the most basic form of cell we have. How about this, ladies? <laughs> Got a designer? Sure. The point's easy to prove. Everything that's complex conveys information, has a purpose, and is designed. And where we find the design, we will always find a designer if you just go backwards. Number two, the universe is filled with evidence of complex design. So let's uh, approach it with test number one that we've looked at for design. Just like in our everyday world, in the universe, we find design everywhere we look. To determine the universe was designed, and thus whether there's a designer, we're going to look at three tests. We're going to look for evidence of God's existence and did he leave his fingerprints in the design of this universe. Now, messages come from, nat from minds, not from natural laws. I hope you've seen that in the sand. And Stephen Meyer, whose daughter, by the way, he'll be in the country next year. And hopefully we happen to ha hope to have him here. His daughter's going to Otago University to study a specialist area there. He wrote The Signature in the Cell, a phenomenal book for those of you who love to read the very latest on what's happening in biotechnology. Our uniform experience firms that specified information, whether inscribed in hieroglyphics, written in a book, encoded in a radio signal, or produced in a simulation experiment, always arises from an intelligent source, from a mind, and not strictly from material processes. Very straightforward, that part. Now, in 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick discovered what? DNA. Right. We have a man who's sitting in this audience here today who has worked in their laboratory in Switzerland. DNA is found in each individual of your trillions of cells that you have in your body. Every plant, every animal, and every human being. Now, visually, DNA can be pictured like two twisted strands of a ladder, basically a twisting ladder. And DNA is to the cell what our brain is to the body. It's where the cell stores all the information necessary for a cell to function. DNA tells each cell what to make, how to make it, and when to make it. It tells it all that. How to, whether to make hair, muscle, brain tissues, nerve tissues, or bone cells. DNA is like extremely complicated software. And we're all familiar with software. DNA cannot be seen by the human eye, yet it stores more data in a smaller play, uh, space than even today our most advanced computers today. The message found in just the cell nucleus of a tiny amoeba is more than 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica, all in perfect order. Just in the nucleus. The entire amoeba has as much information in the DNA as 1,000 sets of the 
30 odd volumes, 30 volumes in the Cyclopaedia Britannica. Can you imagine that? It's mind-blowing. Now, stay with me here. If a simple message such as I love you, we instantly recognise that that came from human intelligence, an intelligent being was required, then why doesn't a specifically ordered message consisting of 1,000 sets of 30-volume encyclopedias require intelligence? DNA certainly meets our first test. It's one highly complex. There's no spelling mistakes. It's highly complex and contains detailed information. But this raises some questions. What in the world is the source? Look, for one minute, how many of you got running Windows at the moment at work? Windows? Okay. How many? Macs. Okay? Okay. Would you think that that operating system just assembled itself? Sometimes you may think that. (laughs) But the point is, even the old Windows XP, which most of us had, that had 21 million lines of code in it. We're going to get to Uncle Bill in a minute. What determines how its messages are sent, the DNA? How does a cell machinery know how to build proteins? How many of you heard of the Tesla car? Tesla, the car? Have you ever seen those pictures where the robots go and they put the whole thing together? You go, whoa, that's amazing. But somebody assemble a robots and the whole thing comes together and comes off beautiful and shiny. Yet all this happens inside the cell and the engine parts just come together with no rock. They just know where to go and they just fit perfectly in this exact right place. How does that happen? We have no idea how it all happens. Who or what tells the machinery how to divide? Complexity is a symbol for improbability. You may want to just write that at the side somewhere. I don't think I put that in your notes. Complexity is a synonym for improbability. Specified complexity is information. It's not just improbable, it has a message. Now the precise arrangement of DNA, specified complexity needs to be explained. For example, each gram of DNA has 700 terabytes of information. You know what a terabyte is? Yeah, it's a lot. Think about those disk drives. I mean, I'd hate to think how much it would fill here. Each gram so it's very complex, far better than all of our latest computers. Now, how do we know that information comes only from a mind? Look at any email or book or code. Next one there, guys. There's an intelligent mind behind each one. DNA is far more than a book of computer code. It's a phenomenal amount of organised data. And all of these marks of design mean somewhere a designer was behind it. See, digital information directs the manufacturer in the cell, just like they do at Boeing in Seattle. There's computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing. And if you want to give your computer new ability to accomplish a new function, you need software, you need new code, you need an upgrade. If you want to do Apple Pay, you need the new iOS 8.1. You need new software, in this case, hardware too. So we know that information comes only from a mind. Look at any newspaper. That didn't just happen by chance. Or any book. Or any computer. Anybody who's done computer coding, no. You can miss one full stop, the whole thing doesn't work. It's a pain. 
<laughs> but DNA is far more than all of that. Digital information. Okay. Let's move on. So, next thing. What is the source of a genetic code? Bill Gates said this, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we have ever created. And that's from the guy who arguably has done quite a lot. Software is a set of instructions for computer. Likewise, DNA tells a cell how to do its job and assemble proteins and things like that. What is the source of this complex set of instructions? There's no way you believe that XP just assembled itself. So without it, without the information in a cell, not, not even a cell can be constructed and life would not exist. That's the point. It couldn't exist. So the question is about the information. And it's closely related to the question is how did life begin? Now, we have, because we have a high percentage of info, uh, IT folks here, I want to just briefly do a sidebar on Microsoft. One of their top engineers, there's 100 top engineers in a certain class on Microsoft. One of those particular guys spent two years learning how cells are programmed, or trying to get his head around it. And one day, he pulled out a standard manual for software design called Design Patterns, and he says this, I quote, I get an eerie feeling that somebody has figured this out before. We find the same cell design in cell design. So the design of the cell is giving inference to the best explanation we only know of one kind of cause that's able to create in the genome, including in a cell you have hierarchical filing systems like within folders. You know folders and how we all store things? It's got hierarchical storage in a cell. It has automated like error correction, like when you're typing in Word and all of a sudden it comes up in red, you spelt it wrong, whoop, and it corrects it. It's automatically got that. It's got nested coding like we use in something called cryptography. It's got distributed storage and retrieval systems. And Microsoft's top engineer literally said, quote, design patterns inside the cell are executed with a 9 to 10.0 efficiency. Far, with an elegance far exceeding what we've been able to achieve in modern digital computing. And he puts it current at 4.2 in Microsoft. And this is doing an 8 and a 9. Where did that intelligence come from? I want to suggest to you as an intelligent designer is the best explanation for the origin of information necessary to build first life. Information comes from conscious activity and an intelligent source. Conscious activity and intelligent source. Okay, back to test number three. Here is our car again. Does it have a purpose? Our final test will show the degree to which the universe has been designed for purpose, that of sustaining human life. Was the universe designed to sustain human life? We've already made the point that if something was designed, it's normally designed for a purpose. Consider cats. They are all designed with a primary purpose of getting people from A to B safely, in comfort, with options and amenities. Now, car designers leave us a lot of evidence to show that they want us to arrive safely with seats for our comfort, airbags for our safety, GPSs to make sure we don't get lost, multimedia centres, and a finely tuned engine, which we hope we're going to get to our destination okay. So great care has been taken to design cars safer, easier, and more enjoyable to travel. So... 
Let's have a look at this. The universe seems to have been planned, I want to suggest to you, and designed for a purpose in mind, and that is to sustain life. The universe also seems to have been planned and designed from the beginning with a particular purpose in mind to sustain life. And that from the very beginning, the universe was suited to allow for life, as can be seen in the fact of the original expansion rate, was perfectly balanced. If the universe had expanded faster than it did, no planets could possibly have formed. And if no planets could have formed, there'd be no more Earth or life on Earth. If it had been slower, it would eventually collapse back on itself. And again, no Earth, no life. The main point is this, is that the rate of expansion was perfectly designed to ensure life survival. Who planned and controlled that? This perfectly designed expansion rate? I want to suggest to you that the designer had that under control. That from the very beginning, life was suited to allow, uh, the universe was designed to allow for life that can be seen in the fact of the expansion rate. Okay. Look at this, Mr. Stephen Hawking. He's not exactly uh, a Christian. He is not. And he says this, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million millionth of a second, that's pretty small. After the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. How did that happen? It was just right, not too fast, not too slow, in the Goldilocks zone. The universe operates according to a set of laws, such as the law of gravity and the speed of light. These laws are extremely finely tuned. There's about a hundred of them. Imagine a whole board with a hundred knobs all over them. If just one of those is tuned in less than 5% wrong, the whole thing collapses. It's pretty finely tuned. Life would not exist on earth. Anthony Flew, perhaps the most famous atheist of the 20th century, who's just recently become a theist based on the evidence from biology and astronomy. Because the more we know, the more we know, oh my goodness, somebody's monkeyed with the physics of the universe. He says this, perhaps, um, he says this, that, uh, that the universe has been adjusted in a particular way. If there'd be no fine-tuning the laws, there'd be no life. Who finally tuned them? Who finally set exactly 100 of those knobs perfectly on the right place? Who did that? I want to suggest to you a designer did that. Let's take a look at this. There are billions of galaxies in the universe. And there are different kinds of galaxies. We live in a special one called a spiral galaxy. And it's the one that is actually most suited for life. There are other kinds, elliptical, I won't go into them all, but other galaxies cannot support life. Some are too close to each other, some are too hot, some are too unstable. Dr. Hugh Ross said the only kind of galaxy provides life, only our kind of galaxy provides life with the best chance of survival. He's an astrophysicist. Now, our planet, where we're located in the galaxy, is important. We're located in something called the Milky Way. And spiral galaxies look like they have arms. And we're in the perfect spot. Again, not too close, not too far away. The Goldilocks zone. If we're closer 
to our galaxy's arms, the earth could not have formed. We're in a safe zone. Now, if we were any farther away from where we are when it comes to the sun, as little as 2 to 5%, we would either freeze up or burn up, if there's that variation. We are right here, bang in the right spot, not too hot, not too cold. Now, is that the result of random chance? Or did the designer, a master designer, actually plan that and purpose it to create a place for us to live and to flourish? Our sun is perfectly positioned, perfectly. Look at that. Our sun can't be too big. It can't be too small. And we must have the precise temperature. So it's designed for human life to survive. Jupiter is another large, huge planet. And because of its size, it draws asteroids and comets away from us. See those little dots on it, those dark plumes? They're actually... Uh, objects that have been flying through our solar system that have hit the surface of that and it draws them into it like a vacuum cleaner so it hits them rather than us. Those dark plumes are comet strikes and they, they are bigger than Earth, those comet strikes that you just saw there. How about the moon? We have a perfect moon. It's right size and right distance from the Earth, keeps our orbit stable. Without our particular moon, our orbit would be unstable and it would make life here impossible because our moon also regulates a whole bunch of other things. One of them is tides. And we will be swamped, uh, our place will be swamped, much of our land. So our moon is designed also for, to allow human life. Robert Jastrow says this, the universe was made, it was designed for man to live in. It's an ideal balance of earth and water, enough fresh water to sustain life, enough plant life to provide us with food, and the atmosphere is perfectly balanced to sustain human life. If the atmosphere was thicker, the rays, sun's rays couldn't get through and keep it warm enough. The earth would be too cold and we wouldn't be able to grow food. If the atmosphere was thinner, we'd be bombarded by harmful gamma rays and we wouldn't be able to grow the necessary food again. So our atmosphere, even the atmosphere, appears to be designed just right. Scientist and mathematician Freeman Dyson said, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known that we were coming. Interesting. You see, the designer not only knew that we were coming, but he prepared the earth for us, and we can see some of his fingerprints there. There are more than 100 separate features that do that. Again, Jastrow again says, the universe was made, it was designed for man to live in. Now, we've shown already so far these two points. Every complex design has a designer. These are the first two points are true. Everywhere we look in the universe, we find complex design. Clearly, I can't cover all the subject in such a short period of time. We found the God's fingerprints in the design of the universe from the single cell, the very smallest, to the very, to the very largest, from the micro scale to the macro scale. The entire universe was designed by an intelligent designer of enormous power. Imagine that. And therefore, we draw the necessary conclusion. The universe had a designer. And the final piece of evidence we're going to quickly look at is examine the uh, universal moral law. Now, we've looked at the two arguments for a theistic God. It had a beginning. We're clear about that. So beginning's a big one we need to remember. Now we're going to look at the moral law. Are there any morals 
which the most cultures in the world somehow seem to agree on. A moral law differs from a custom. Custom is the way people do behave, do behave. Morals refer to how they ought to behave. So if so, where did they come from? Now let me ask you a question. Of these two people here, is one right and one wrong? Is Is one right and one wrong? Well, how do you know that? The way they live. Well, how do you you know? If If there isn't a God, what's right and what's wrong? So if there is no God, there is no way I should live my life. There is no afterlife. There is no judgment. So why shouldn't I kill as many people as I want? Nothing wrong with it. You like to preserve life. I like to kill life. So what? In fact, Hitler, he was actually, if you read his Mein Kampf and you read his other writings, he thought he was promoting and speeding up the evolutionary process, weeding out the weak people. Well, we may choose to lie or steal from others. We don't want others to lie or steal from us. So the existence of this moral law seems that there are basic principles of right and wrong. So here's a logical conclusion. We've shown our first points are true. Every moral law has a moral lawmaker. If there's a universal moral law, because the first, and there is a universal moral law, because these first two points are true, therefore, number three, there must be a universal moral lawmaker. So who or what is that source? Who or what outside of all people, outside of all cultures, outside of all times, will do this. This moral lawmaker can only be God because only an eternal being such as God can impose a moral law on all people, everywhere, and at all times. So we just the third one there. Next slide. So we've looked at the beginning. We had a beginning. We've looked at the designer and we've just briefly touched on morality. We've seen in Genesis 1, we've seen virtually everywhere in the universe from the nanoscale to the um, macro scale, there must be a designer who planned and created. This stuff doesn't just happen by itself. So we must ourselves, and we're going to do this next week, to which God does all this evidence point? Does it point to the God of the Bible or to some other God? Or the God of pantheism. Father, today we have covered an enormous amount of material. But I pray that you would equip each of these people that are sitting here today to ponder, consider, and use this material in this series for your glory. I thank you for the conversations that are happening in homes and in offices. And I thank you for the challenge that you're putting in people's hearts to equip themselves and again to stand and think about how amazing you are, that you created this universe for us so that you could bring your son Jesus into this world and we could spend eternity again outside of time where you are with you thank you that you created this experience called life and the prayers we move into the weeks ahead you'd help us make sense you'd 
consolidate out the way that we see you and this worldview. I pray that we grow to love you more and that, Father, you would equip us to defend our faith and to give reasons for the hope that we have in you. In the precious and powerful name of our Saviour Jesus Christ. And all the people thankfully said,